Hey, Alicia, you got your mug? Hey, Jamie girl, I got my glass. Let's get into this black tea. This is black tea, your bottomless cup of empowerment, political education, and black excellence. Every month, we bring you raw and uncut news, spilling the tea on all of the latest hot-button social issues and events for the culture. Welcome to another episode of Black Tea. I can't believe this is episode nine. I can't either. Look at us, Alicia. Look how okay. okay, making it episode nine. Nine. That's crazy. Um, and so we're gonna get right into it, sippers. Thank you for joining us. Um, we're so excited and to talk to you about what we're going to talk about. And one of the first things we're going to talk about is what people all over the country are talking about. And that is housing. Yes. Something that I personally believe is a right that every human should have access to. But now, especially in the midst of a pandemic that is becoming more and more of a struggle to find and keep. Yes, exactly. And Sippers, you may have heard on the news that St. Louis's very own Representative Cori Bush was in the news about housing, specifically about the eviction moratorium that was in place. Representative Bush uh, spent the night sleeping on the House Capitol steps because the moratorium that was put in place by the Center for Disease Control um, was about to expire. And a moratorium basically meant that for a set period of time that was in place in areas where COVID-19 was the highest, landlords couldn't evict their tenants. Right. This moratorium made evictions illegal um, and it was supposed to expire in early August, around the same time that our Congress goes on recess, which could have resulted in millions becoming unhoused. Thank goodness our good sis, Congresswoman Cori Bush, understood the assignment. And instead of going on vacation with the rest of her colleagues, she exemplified a politivist specifically with Roots and Ferguson, and like Jamie said, camp- camped out on those Capitol steps. Other colleagues like AOC, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders, and plenty from the community joined in. Congresswoman Corey and her staff knew that if Congress didn't want to act, um, didn't want to act, the White House could motivate the Center for Disease Control, CDC, to pass an extension. And after getting the media and press to bring attention to the issue, they gave another 60-day extension. But sippers, unfortunately, the Supreme Court ruled that it couldn't go into effect. Right. And yeah. this is something that um, this is something that As you all know, I care about a lot because I'm always talking about housing policy and community development and how important housing policy is. And so this is one of those cases where when we're talking about evictions, um, it's actually becoming very real, something that affects millions of people every day. And so you would think that in a pandemic, the Center for Disease Control would have the authority to do what it needs to do to protect people and keep people healthy. And that is why they initially passed the eviction moratorium. But what a lot of people don't understand is that evictions are actually very complicated and every case isn't the same. When someone gets evicted, typically the landlord goes to court and gets a court order that says that a person's lease is terminated. And that means they have to move out regardless of how long they've lived there, regardless of how many times they've been paying their bills on time. Most of the time, the lease is terminated because someone has backed rent. And so they may have missed rent payments for a month or two, or they may have done something to violate their lease in breaking one of the contract policies. And so the reason that these evictions are actually a public health crisis is that a lot of people got behind on rent because of the pandemic, because they weren't working, because they felt concerned to go into the their office or their place of work and, and felt unsafe. And so if you put all of these people out onto the street at the same time, now you'll have people that are potentially infected with nowhere to go or to quarantine safely. Right. Um, and so the Supreme Court, well, so I think this topic is really interesting because y'all know Jamie is 
all into housing policy and development. And we talked about, you know, many times before how relevant housing and these types of things are. And then on my side, you know, I'm very into public health and these types of things. And so I think like this issue gives us a chance to see the very close intersection between these things. Mm -hmm. And so the Supreme Court in their ruling stated that the CDC or the Center for Disease um, Control overstepped their boundaries and their authority and that they don't have the right, even in the midst of a global pandemic, to extend the moratorium. Um, I'm curious about your thoughts on this, Jamie, just like your personal thoughts. If housing is tied to public health at this moment, wouldn't it make sense for the CDC to be able to make that call? Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest with y'all. I really don't understand their logic on this either um, from a public from a public health standpoint. But I do understand it from a legal standpoint in the sense that basically whenever something is extended like this, usually Congress is the one that has to pass and make that decision because as you might understand, um, evictions don't just necessarily affect the tenants. They also affect the landlords. A lot of people think that landlords are all big corporations, um, but they're not. Some of them are just individual people that may own a house or own another place, and they have a mortgage too. They have bills too. And so if those bills aren't getting paid um, by the rent, someone has to pay them. And so uh, what rep- this goes back all goes back to what Representative Bush was saying and doing in the first place, which is that it's up to Congress to pass something. It's up to Congress to do something. Representative Maxine Waters created a bill months ago to make the extension go until December. But with the way Congress is right now, the likelihood of that passing is very low. Um, So ultimately, this creates a bigger problem and it's not going to be easy to solve in a short amount of time. Well, sippers, we'll have to see what Congress does. Hopefully we can all just, you know, this is why we should pay close attention to the people we elect, because you elect them to represent you. And when things happen, are they able to actually serve you or do they just go on vacation? Um, But I would love to see the federal government, while extending the eviction moratorium, also maybe make some money available for the property owners so that they don't have to fall into default on their mortgages or with fake loan um, or with lenders and things like that. But more to come on that. In the meantime, sippers, y'all know we got you. Um, And so part of what we want to do here on Black Tea is not just talk about the issues, but help connect you to resources. So for our St. Louis sippers in need of local resources, if you're in St. Louis City, you can call 211. Or if you're in St. Louis County, you can call 314-806-0910 if you're needing any helps with rental assistance. And then we'll also put links to websites you can go to for rental assistance in the episode description. Mm-hmm. The other thing that we wanted to talk about today was Hurricane Ida, which hit early September. What a lot of sippers may not know is that my father's entire side of the family is from Louisiana. So this definitely hit home for me. Wow, Alicia, that that must be tough. That must be tough. I can't even imagine what they're going through. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, Hundreds of thousands of homes and businesses in Louisiana, most of them outside of New Orleans, still don't have power. And more than half of the gas stations in two major cities were without fuel for nine days following the hurricane. Um, And, you know, there were state lines that were split and electric lines that were cut off. It's caused more than $50 billion worth of damage, and it's estimated that only $18 billion of that is coverable by insurance. And this is the second most damaging hurricane to hit Louisiana following Hurricane Katrina. Yes, and and that's something that a lot of people have been talking about, specifically comparing this hurricane to what we saw in Katrina, because Hurricane Ida was the first hurricane to really test um, what what they were able to do after Katrina. So a lot of people know the big issue with Katrina was that the levees broke. Right. And so New Orleans spent all this money rebuilding these levees and the system um, to try to make sure that what happened with Katrina didn't happen again. And we can go into all the other things. It wasn't just the levees. It was also a breakdown of government. And so a lot of people have been waiting to see how the government 
was going to respond this time. And so the biggest thing with people that are in Louisiana, especially when a hurricane hits in the summer is heat, right? Like Alicia said, a lot of people were without power. They didn't have gas to go anywhere. Um, 580,000 people were being advised to boil their water just to make sure that it was safe to drink. Um, and so Things um, as hard as they are, um, you know, you can say comparatively speaking, weren't as hard as what happened with Katrina um, and the other. Um, but the government, but this time the government is actually stepping up. So President Joe Biden did travel to New Orleans um, a, a, about a week after the hurricane hit to survey all of the damage and to meet with local leaders um, and to demonstrate, you know, that there was going to be a federal response to the storm this time. At least um, the storm also caused lots of other impacts um, in places all the way up to the East Coast, even to New York, actually. Yeah. The impact of the storm will be felt by many all over the world for quite some time. And I think for us, for this, for Black Tea and for the world, that it really just ties back into how the political is personal, because yes. the people who are going to decide what resources get allocated, where they get allocated to, um, all of that is going to be decided by our representatives. That is a, a political thing. Um, I have family that has had to, they're having to relocate and rebuild their life all over again. And this is their second time having to do so. Um, I have some family that still hasn't been located. We don't know um, what's what's going on with them or, or where they are. So I just want to encourage sippers to be kind and supportive to one another, to do whatever you can do to help. Um, and certainly times like these where collective people, power, love, and tenacity are needed most. Yes, yes. We need to love on one another. And I will be loving on y'all's co-host as well in this time. This episode of Black Tea is brought to you by the Divided City Initiative. The Divided City is a joint project of the Center for the Humanities and the Sam Fox School, College of Architecture and Urban Design at Washington University, right here in St. Louis. The Divided City is funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Okay, sippers, for today's section of Community Spotlight, we got a little spice, a little possessed for you, something a little different. So often we get feedback from listeners and followers that we kind of, you know, we, we, we love to highlight our community. That's what Community Spotlight is for. And it often looks like putting the spotlight on, you know, other individuals and other people. But we've done a few where we told you a little about what we do. But one of the things that we haven't really talked about, although y'all know that we have Financial Fridays and y'all know that we talk a lot about community development and the importance of that. What we haven't talked about is that our very own Jamie Cox is actually she's on the board for an organization called Rise and she's actually chair of the Young Professionals Division of Rise. So I'm going to do something that Jamie hates and I'm going to go ahead and put her on the spotlight and we're going to start off the community spotlight section by having her tell us, um, Cypress, because we want the tea. Okay. What is RISE? What does it do? Um, why did you, what made you get involved in it? And then specifically tell us a little bit about the Young Professionals Division that you chair. Great. Well, thank you, Alicia. You know, I hate this. Um, but RISE is, RISE is uh, organization that's really near and dear to my heart. It is a nonprofit community development organization. And so what that means is they are a whole one-stop shop for community development related practices. The other thing that they do is they do consulting. So for neighborhood development corporations, you may hear your local neighborhood has a development corporation like Northside Community Housing or Dutchtown South Community Development Corporation. These are neighborhood development entities that RISE will partner with in order to help them um, complete ideas that they have for their own neighborhood so that people in those communities can do it themselves. And so kind of how I got involved, um, as y'all know, I work in real estate and real estate finance as a professional. Um, but I also am very passionate about doing this everywhere, doing this in my own hometown in St. Louis. And so RISE is known to be one of the best um, organizations that does this type of work locally. And I wanted to be a part of supporting that. And that kind of evolved from me being on that committee to also being on the events committee to being asked when the 
former chair stepped down to step up and become the chair of the Young Professionals Board. And so what the Young Professionals do is basically their organization of, or a separate division of RISE made up of individuals between the ages of 23 and 35 that are also passionate about this work. Um, and so they will, like I said, have all these different committees working on different projects for events to help RISE raise money or for diversity, equity, inclusion to make sure that um, these conversations are being had at the organization um, to also doing projects. So uh, the rising professionals will work on um, community development plans. One they did was for the Jefferson neighborhood, the Jefferson Connector Project that you might hear people talk about with all the NGA and all that stuff, doing planning themselves. Young professionals do that. And all of us are from different industries, but we're all um, in architecture or development or finance. Some of us work in healthcare, um, but really everybody cares about this work and, and that's why I did it. And um, and that's what I'm doing today. And also as being chair, I also get to sit on the governing board for RISE as well. So I'm on the, the actual big governing board for the nonprofit organization, which is really cool. Amen, Jamie. Well, we are happy to have that information and always um, want to do our best to keep our supers up to date. We do so much outside of the show that it's kind of hard sometimes to talk about everything. But I think like that's important. And I think it has a lot to do with who we're featuring on today's community spotlight section. Yes, it does. So we will be featuring the executive director of Rise YP, Terrell Carter. Um, and it's going to be a real treat, y'all, because um, he's actually spotlighting us and then we will spotlight him. And so you're going to get a double community spotlight um, on that and hear more about our stories. So let's get into it. Today's episode. Hello and welcome to Communities Forward. Uh, today is a really interesting episode. I am uh, happy to have two special guests, uh, Alicia Saunier and Jamie Cox. Did I pronounce your last right uh, name correctly, Alicia? Yes, you did. And Jamie, you are a vet at, at this. And uh, Alicia, this is my first time meeting you, but Jamie, uh, we have a relationship already. You are on the board for uh, Rice Community Development, where I serve as president and executive director, but you're also in charge of the Rise Young Professionals Board as well, correct? Yep. yep, that's right. Thank you for being on. So the first thing I'd like to do is to try to make sure our listeners understand something about our guests. So however you would like to do this, tell our listeners a little bit more about each of you. Like, again, are you from St. Louis or where are you from? What do you do professionally? Um, just some things like that. Sure, do you wanna kick it off, Alicia? Okay, um, sure. So I'm Alicia Sanye, like you just said. Um, Jamie and I have been best friends since high school. Um, so we go way back, almost to the sandbox. Um, <laughs> I am born and raised in St. Louis, so I, I grew up here. Um, I went to school here. I ended up graduating from undergrad from the University of Missouri, St. Louis. Um, I studied psychology, biology, and African American studies. Um, I work now as a mental health advocate. I also start school. Um, so I'm going to nursing school starting August 23rd, very soon. Um, I'm on the Board of Education for the city of St. Louis. And Jamie and I have um, a show together, a media organization called Black Tea um, that aims to raise the political, social, and cultural consciousness um, while engaging audiences in an entertaining and conversational way. Um, I was a really big activist, um, which is how a lot of people in the community know me following the murder of, of Michael Brown. And so I'm just someone who was born and raised here in St. Louis who believes strongly in people power um, and in using whatever avenue, including policy, um, education, media, whatever it takes so that we can be aware and move closer towards liberation. Wow, thank you for that. So Jamie, I'm gonna give you a second to introduce yourself, but you just used the word, Alicia, that is very important, that word liberation. So don't think you get to walk away from this and not explain what liberation means. So let's give Jamie a few minutes to introduce herself and then let's get back to the meaning of that word liberation. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Terrell. Um, so I am 
Jamie Cox. I am also born and raised here in St. Louis. I grew up in University City. And as Alicia mentioned, uh, we know each other because we were high school classmates. I went to a Carter Ritter College prep for high school for all the native St. Louis people that are curious. <laughs> After uh, high school, I actually went out of state for college. I did my undergrad at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, where I studied urban policy and development. So that explains a little bit about why I'm interested in, in working with RISE, but that's my background. And, and after undergrad, I actually went overseas for, a, for my master's degree. I did the Shoresman Scholars Program, which is a master's program uh, based out of Beijing, China. So I was living overseas for a while. And then I moved back to St. Louis in 2019, um, where I started my professional career working in real estate development. So now I work in real estate and financial development professionally. Outside of that, as Terrell already mentioned, I am the chair of the Rise Young Professionals Board. Um, I've been on the board for about two years and been chair for one year. Um, so that's how we've been connected. And also outside of that, I co-host Black Tea with Alicia. Um, and I guess I can give a little bit of more of a background about Black Tea. I'm sure we'll get into that. Um, but like she said, we're an audiovisual podcast um, that we actually started um, kind of in the midst of the pandemic. It was kind of our passion project that just really blossomed and bloomed. And we're also sponsored by the Divided City Initiative um, out of Washington University as well. So that's just kind of how we got kicked off with that. But that's what I do. Thank you both so much. And I want to just not even clarify, that's not the right word, but uh, you two are both young Black women, young Mm -hmm. African-American women. Uh, and I say that because our listeners on the Communities Forward podcast can't see you. Um, but I think that's important for us to, to mention that. Um, so we're going to get back to the liberation question in just a second, Alicia. I want to ask uh, Jamie, so Beijing, China, what yeah. was that like as a young Black woman? And again, I'm not trying to put your ages out there, and I don't say that disrespectfully, uh, but a young Black woman who was working on our graduate degree. What did that, what was that like to be in Beijing, China? It was, it was very interesting for me. Um, so to give everybody a little context, I, I'd, I'd always had an interest in China. Chinese was my minor um, language in undergrad. And so I'd studied Chinese and that was one of the reasons why I wanted to spend more time in the country just to, to practice my language. But it was a really interesting experience um, to, to your point, being young, being black, being in a country where um, a lot of people just aren't exposed to people of different, different races and ethnicities and backgrounds in general because it's a very homogenous uh, country. And so that was something that I think really pushed me out of my comfort zone, um, being in a place, um, even in, in the United States, you know, uh, we are considered to be Black people minorities, um, but being in a place where you are a true minority as you may go a couple of days without seeing another person that looks and sounds like and speaks the same language as you. Um, so it was definitely, definitely an eye-opening experience for me to kind of be out of, really out of my comfort zone and, and also pushing the boundaries of what my comfort zone even is as I had understood it up to that point. How, how huge was the shock, level of shock when they heard you speak as Mandarin, correct? Mm -hmm. How level of how huge or how large was the level of shock the first time they heard you speak Mandarin or go, wait a minute, I can understand what you're saying, ma'am, sir. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I wish I could describe the look on the faces because it was priceless. It was yeah. absolutely priceless. I, I, so I've traveled overseas a couple of times. It's usually for me to go teach indigenous leaders or to do some consulting, like with a religious organization or religious school. But I went to uh, Myanmar to Burma. And it was me and another African-American female. And we were there for a week and probably the fourth, third or fourth day in, uh, we were at a mall or a shopping area and we're walking and all of a sudden a black, another black woman comes around the corner and we all looked at each other like, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Like, wait a minute, we thought we were the only ones. And she just, she walked away pretty quickly after that. But anyway, this is pretty funny. Uh, thank you for those stories. Thank you for sharing that information. Uh, Alicia, so, or either one of you, actually, uh, you used the word liberation earlier. That is a jam-packed word. Uh, explain what Black Tea is and how does liberation play into whatever the purpose is of Black Tea? So, Black Tea um, came about because there was, during, it was in, during a pandemic, and I think it was during, like, August of 2020, um, I was getting ready to... I was actually getting, I was moving. So I was moving to a new apartment, but I had like a week before my lease was up. 
So Jamie was kind enough to let me like crash at her place with her for the week while I was in transition. And so like, you know, um, Jamie had just, she had returned to St. Louis recently and it was our first time kind of like sharing space that long. We were both, um, it was a pandemic. So we were both like working from home. We would get up. It was like a sisterhood sleepover (laughs) all week long. We would get up and have Starbucks every day and like, what are we having for dinner tonight? Um, And it was just really interesting to see the differences between like those sleepovers versus the ones that we had in in high school. Um, But What's really interesting about um, me and Jamie's relationship was even when we went to college, everything happened with Michael Brown in 2014. Um, And I got very highly involved. Actually, um, the first night that everything happened with Michael Brown, um, I saw it on the news and I had texted Jamie and two other friends of ours. And I just said like, hey, I I don't know what's going on, but like I see these pictures on on Twitter and I I thought they were from the civil rights movement because it was like white officers and and, um, you know, black communities and, and dogs and the whole nine. But then I saw his mom um, and I saw her just heartbroken and heartfelt and, and like crying. And this is before we even knew Michael Brown's name, before we knew um, Darren Wilson's name. And I, I didn't know what else to do. So I, I said, you know, Jamie, maybe we can just like go down and be present. And at the time, his mom was asking for a visual. So we went and we um, got candles with our two other friends and we went down there. And that was the night that changed the world that everyone everyone saw. Um, and so um, Jamie left a little earlier. We went down and when we got there, people were leaving and we didn't really like understand why people were, were leaving. And so we left, but I ended up... Um, going back later on that night and just seeing a police um, honestly brutalize a community in a way that I'd never seen before up close. And I was just very confused by it all, which sparked me being engaged. And so Jamie would come back like on school breaks, like there's pictures of us. And I just screenshotted one, we probably would post it to Black Tea where she would literally come back on school break. And I'm like, hey girl, um, so I'm shutting them all down tomorrow. Um, <laughs> you should you should come. And like she, there's some pictures where she she would like, be one of the be one of the leaders because obviously in a protest and especially at the climate at that time um, you want to keep people safe and I think for that action there was a couple hundred people so Jamie was like okay I'm I'm down like I'm here and so she um, she led a group. Um, and, and brought them in through a certain intersection through the mall because we kind of had them come through different interests and meet up at a point. And that's kind of been, I mean, even in high school, she um, there is an organization called University City Youth Society that was, you know, really aimed at kind of showing youth in a positive way and also to kind of resist some of the gun violence that you see when you might go to a private school and your peers might go to public school and you start seeing y'all's outcomes being being different. And we did that together. And so we just kind of like throughout our lives, you know, we, we had, we, we both shared this like sense of like community. And so I was like, you know, I kind of have this idea, like I want to um, maybe start a show or something because I feel like a lot of the spaces that we're in, so many of our peers are not. And I don't want to be the only one. And I also feel like a lot of the times it's the same groups of people having these conversations about, you know, politics and what's going on in their community and awareness. And I feel like it's intentional. Like, I feel like it's very boring. A lot of times it's very unengaging or like what happens when you're a part of a field or an industry is you use jargon that's some, that's unacceptable to people who are not in that field. And so Jamie was like, yeah, you should. Like, that's a great idea. You should. So I told her that. And then like the next day, I remember she like woke up and we like logging in to start for work. You know, we have our refreshers, our Starbucks. And she's like, hey, here's this grant. Like, here's this grant. You should do it. You should apply for this grant to get your star show started. And I'm kind of looking like hmm, a grant for a show. So I read through it. And it's the Divided City Grant application. It's due in like uh, two or three weeks. All I have is like this idea that's very like unpolished that I had for a while, but didn't know how to do it. So I, I looked over it. Then at the end of our workday that day, we placed an order from a, for soul food from a from a black owned business. Shout out to Gourmet Soul. And I'm like, you know, Jamie, you're right. This is a good idea. We should do this. <laughs> and so let me let me interrupt for just a second. And ask a question. What is on the horizon for Black Tea then? What are the next things? So you are on, Alicia, you are on the school board. What do we need to know about um, the the St. Louis public school system uh, now that you are a part of the inside? And I say that respectfully. (laughs) What do we need to know? What should we be aware of? 
Uh, I think there's a whole lot to know, which is part of um, of, of why I ran. Um, I think what is probably <clears throat> the most important thing to know about St. Louis Public Schools is that um, education, you know, in general, you know, it's a system and it's an institution. I learned about it very you know, very in-depth as a SLU student. You know, I was meeting with board of trustees and the president of our university and helping to pass a million dollar initiative so that we could invest in our community. And so now I've been on a board of education. I'm trying to think of the most important thing to know. Um, everything is political. And I think that's what Black Tea is about. Like the idea that your existence and your participation or even your not participation in your world and in your society is political. Even you not participating says something like no response is a response. And so I think um, St. Louis Public Schools is at a, you know, it's at a, it's at a very particular point. There are, you know, we are in Missouri, which is a red state, and there are groups that are not um, pro-public schools. We have entities that think that Education should be um, completely private and there should be no public schools. Um, we are in a situation like in our district, 20% um, of our students are actually unhoused. And those are numbers pre-pandemic. And we're going to say that again, that please. 20% of our students are what? Of our students are unhoused. And what does that mean, unhoused? Um, so some people would say uh, homeless. Um, that it means that they have, there's, there's something in our system that has triggered that they don't have you know, uh, a reliable, consistent, secure place for, for housing, for shelter. Wow. Um, and that's, wow. that's one fifth of our district. And so like in a district like ours that has 20,000 students, um, and we're going to see what these numbers look like again, because we're in a pandemic. So there's some very unique challenges. Um, and one fifth of your, and 80%, over 80% of your district is African-American. And you're dealing with the things that we have in St. Louis, both positive and, and, and negative. There's a lot of challenges. And so it's very important who's at the table, who's making the decisions, what relationships we're building, what partnerships we're building. And so we're working right now just to really, we have the Delta variant, so we have to think about what's best and most safe for our students. We have an ongoing political climate that we have to participate in and we're maneuvering. So we recently started a legislative legislative and advocacy committee that I'm vice chair of so that we can kind of build our political voice and make our agenda known because there are people actively working against the interests of a public school and, and, and it's public education period constantly. So I think just look, follow, look, go to our YouTube channel, follow our meetings, stay aware of what's going on. Um, I'm going to be releasing a newsletter very soon to kind of give people a summary of what I think is important in this space and what people should know and some personal reflections. So feel free to follow that, you know, um, listen to Black Tea or listen to other entities. Just stay aware and, and stay engaged. Thank you, um, Jamie. So your specialization or your area where you work professionally uh, is primarily in real estate or how would you describe it? Yeah, real estate and uh, community development investment finance so is what, a long breath away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what do what do our listeners need to be aware of? What are some of the things that are concerning to you? That may not be the right word, but what do you think people should be paying more attention to as it relates to that as it uh, occurs in St. Louis or the metropolitan region? Yeah, I think the biggest the biggest pieces and the reason why for me community development investment is so important is because it's the lack of being able to visually see the uh, I'll use the term value because that's how we talk about it in real estate, but it's not actually true. The value of a neighborhood tends to be what you see on the outside, right? Like how pretty are the buildings? How many shops are there? How many grocery stores are in the neighborhood? And we tend to value neighborhoods by what brings in more money. And so when we talk about the importance of needing to invest in our communities, the focus tends to be we want to put more value into what already has value. And we don't want to put anything into what we consider to be unvaluable. Um, that's how I like to explain it. And so the things that I'm doing in my life and in my professional career working in investment finance and in my personal life volunteering for organizations like RISE is all about being able to flip 
that concept. And the thing that if I have one passion and the thing that I could do in the world is to tell people that we need to think about investing in communities differently. We should be putting more value into communities that are considered unvaluable. And we should be making sure that we're allocating resources effectively um, in communities that already have. And, and so for St. Louis, this is extremely important is because when we look at half of our city, we see half of our city is as undervalued properties, properties where there's a lot of vacancy, properties where people aren't living there, properties where the trees are overgrown. And, and all the time, Alicia talks about politics, right? What are politicians complaining about? That the north side city area, the north part of our city, um, doesn't have any investment. There's no resources. The kids that are unhoused, the largest proportion of them tends to come from the north side neighborhoods where there's not enough residential livable housing, right? And so for me personally, um, that's what I would like to see change. That's kind of my, you know, personal goal and, and the things that I'm working toward and where I'm putting my time is, is all about solving that issue and, and, and making sure that we get to the root cause of it. Because if we understand, and at least in my personal perspective, um, the fact that kids can't go get a quality education if they're worried about where, where they're going to lay their head at night, that's how we can solve some of the issues in our schools. If we can just get better housing and quality places to live for our kids, like Alicia already talked about. So for me, I think uh, community development and what I like to call it is a root cause of a lot of other issues that we see in our city. Um, and, and, and that's a good place to start if we want to see change. Yeah, I would just jump in and say, too, like, I think, honestly, I think you people should. And it, I know, like, we're not all going to be in community, community development and real estate and finance, but it is really important. I mean, so much of politics is about like money and so much of it is about investment and where you put money. And I often say, if you want to know somebody's priorities and what they care about, especially institutions, look at where they put their money. Um, like even on the school district, one of the conversations, um, I'm on our tax commission. So the city of St. Louis has a tax commission um, for tips and tax abatements and things of that nature. And it's eight and the district has two seats on that. And so myself and our CFO um, sit on, on that seat. And it's such an important, like so important because it has to do, I mean, every time money, every time something happens and it's given to any entity that comes here and building, you're either like giving money to us or taking money from us. And in the history, it's more so been a, a pattern of something taking money from us. So I just like, it is really important that you do the best that you can to stay aware and stay engaged and not sleep on the importance of those things. Because Alicia, I know we can talk all day, um, but I am wondering if Terrell will let me take the reins real quick um, because this is supposed to be a mashup of Black Tea and Communities Forward. And I don't want us to, to have to sign off without getting some information and tea on Terrell for our listeners um, when they listen to this recording and this show. Um, and plus, I think we're talking about something that um, is right on the veins of what RISE does, right? And a lot of people will hear me talk about RISE YP, but aren't actually familiar with what RISE even is. And we have the, the leader um, to explain that to us. So Sorella, if it's cool, I'll kind of flip the script on you real quick for your listeners um, and, and just uh, ask you to talk a little bit about yourself and, and communities forward so we can learn more about that. Um, and then also learn a little bit about RISE too. So I'm just are <laughs> telling us about you? We it's black tea. We like to really. We don't just want the professional stuff. We want to know about Terrell Carter and and who you are and your passion. I am from St. Louis, born and raised behind Sumner High School. Uh, so if I ever say we, it's because I have a twin brother as well. His name is Darrell. Uh, we were raised by our grandparents. Our parents. So grandparents had my father when they were sixteen. Uh, father and mother had us when they were seventeen, eighteen. Uh, their marriage did not last. My parents' marriage did not last. My father uh, ended up going into the military. Um, so neither my grandparents nor either of my parents graduated high school at all. My grandparents only made it to junior high and parents uh, dropped out, you know, junior and senior year while because she was pregnant with us. Father went into the military and was not around. Uh, so my father's parents uh, were the ones who helped my mother raise us. Uh, she couldn't keep a job um, and she lived a she lived a tough life. And it's just really simple for me to put it that way. 
Uh, but my grandparents provided an awful lot of support for her. Not only did my grandparents, but my father's younger brothers, my uncles. Um, and so if you ever read any book uh, that I've ever written or that I will ever write, they are always dedicated to my grandparents because they were the foundation, the rock in our uh, families, our family rather. Uh, my mother was murdered when we were seven years old. Uh, unfortunately, she was again, uh, wrong place, wrong time and um, was stabbed to death. And I don't say that to be morbid. I just say that because that is the reality of my childhood. Uh, so my grandparents raised me and my twin brother, really supportive. Um, they were older than us, obviously, and really tired. So they were not necessarily looking forward to raising two double-headed boys, uh, but they supported us in every way that you could think of. Um, so I was an artist. Um, I saw a picture that my father drew when I was a kid and knew that kindergarten, first grade, that I was an artist as well, just like my dad. Uh, my twin brother eventually became a writer. Um, when we were 14 years old, our father decided he wanted to finally have a relationship with us. And he uh, had already remarried and was living in a small town called Gatesville, Texas. Um, nobody else knows that Gatesville, Texas exists other than people that live there. Uh, and so we moved there with him and his wife and our younger brother and eventually our baby brother was born uh, when we graduated high school as well uh, but that was not a good experience and came back to st louis um, so um, st louis is home um, some wonderful experiences some not so wonderful experiences um, i became a police officer in my early 20s because i had gotten married really young uh, i wanted to get married i always wanted to be a husband and a father I always wanted to have, uh, you know, a family that kind of ideal family life. Uh, and that didn't work out, but I was blessed to have a son. Uh, but I became a police officer when my wife told me she was pregnant. And I was like, all right, I got to figure something out. So in my life, I worked in construction since I was 14 to 23. 23 to 28, I was a police officer. 28 to my mid-30s, late 30s, I always forget the exact uh, age. I was back in construction and community development. Uh, and then I finished uh, a second doctorate um, in 2015 and got recruited out of construction and community development to go teach for the school that I got my second doctorate from and was a full-time professor, uh, program director, and a research director uh, for that university or for that seminary. And then I was recruited to become vice president and chief diversity officer at a uh, university in Illinois. Um, and last year, um, I got, uh, I'm going to use the phrase, the call. I got the call uh, for about rise out of the blue. I was not expecting it, was not thinking about it, was not planning on it and ended up going to rise or accepting the call to rise and began earlier this year. So uh, in a nutshell, my life has been a life of service. Uh, again, I mentioned earlier that I'm a Christian, and uh, I don't ever say that to try to be funny or to sound judgmental to anyone. It's, I always say that so people understand the foundation of what it is I do or why I do it. I believe that I was created to serve, uh, to serve, uh, especially, um, I don't want to use the word disenfranchised, but communities and people that don't necessarily have advocates who are working for them. Uh, one of the things I hoped to do when I was a police officer was to do that in the communities that I grew up in. But uh, I quickly learned that the system of policing in St. Louis is not about helping people. It's about fostering that system and rewarding that system. Um, I serve, you know, still in, in church. Uh, I lead a congregation. Uh, and so that's a part of this call to serve. Uh, so that's that's it. I'm a I'm a middle aged man with two kids, a 24 year old son and a 16 year old daughter. And both of them think I'm as goofy as it's all kid. That's what my life revolves around is my kids. And then it's called to serve. We love like to hear the history and the trajectory. Um, I think that's one of my favorite parts of the show is I feel like a lot of times see people kind of when they are kind of in a really like good position or kind of at the height or the pinnacle of their career and they don't get to see the path. So I love like from I just love that trajectory, like from a police officer to, to where you are now and, and that path, because I think it can help our listeners and our audience know that like where you are is not necessarily doesn't it has nothing to do with where you're going or where you start is no has to have can, you can end somewhere completely um, different. I'm, and then I'm trying to get I'm trying to get my son to understand that now again he's 24 and I always and he's he's a so I'm an artist again 
he's a filmmaker. He got a degree or earned a degree in filmmaking and script writing. And he wants to be the next who what's his name? Uh, I'm sorry. He made the song Redbone. Why am I forgetting his name? Childish Gambino. There you go. He wants to be the next Childish Gambino. <laughs> and so he moved to Atlanta when he graduated from college, took an internship and is now working full time. And I'm like, son, I when I was 23, I hadn't finished college. You were making more money than I was making when I was a police officer at 23, you know, and this whatever this beginning is for you, don't don't look on it poorly because this is the foundation for whatever it is you're about to do next. I never would have imagined working for my uncle's construction company and then all these other smaller things that I just didn't say no to. I used to say yes to everything because I had this idea that if I took as many opportunities as possible, I could learn as much as I possibly could. And then I could use that later on. And that literally is what has happened as you were alluding to Alicia. Uh, it, it's what led to where I am today. Yeah. And then I think like um, Terrell also amazingly to our sippers, that's what we call our listeners. We have not talked a lot about Rise, even though Jamie is so highly involved, not just as a volunteer, but on the executive board and as chair. So I think this is a great chance. Can you tell us about Rise, um, exactly what it is, what it does, and why it's so important to you and why you decided to accept the opportunity? So Rise is a community development corporation, meaning we build, we make stronger, healthier communities. Our goal is to make stronger, healthier communities. And we do that in multiple ways. We either build or help as part of the building process to develop single family, multifamily and commercial units in a community, or we will uh, consult, advise, uh, help people from that community plan how to do that themselves. Like, so if there's a community organization that has um, a history in the community and, you know, has done some things to help benefit the community, we will come alongside them and we call it technical assistance, but we will teach them the things that they need to know in order to get a house built or get an apartment developed or get a street fixed or whatever it is. We will come alongside them and do all those different things. But in addition to that, we also have what's called a CDFI, a community development financial institution, which we make loans or we will fund small women and minority owned businesses. In addition to that, we will fund uh, developers who will, or projects in particular neighborhoods that we have designated as areas that we want to support development in. And so those are just a few things that we do. We also consult for city governments, municipalities. Um, we are um, we are the quintessential organization in the St. Louis metropolitan area that does what we do. And that's not me saying anything out of hyperbole or you know just trying to sell the organization. We have been recognized on the state level as being the best organization at what we do. Uh, again, uh, I, I previously served as an executive director of a smaller CDC, so I had a relationship with Rise through that. And then actually years prior to that, I was a project manager for a construction company. And I had, that's where my relationship began with Rise. But I know at no point in my history of my life that I think that I would be at Rise. And so I was um, vice president last year, like I said, uh, I thought I was on the path that I was supposed to be on, and I got a phone call one day that said, hey, did you hear that uh, the president is retiring after 22 years of service at the organization and 20 years as president? Oh, okay, that sounds nice. Well, I think that you would be the perfect person to be the next president because of ABCD. And I was like, all right, that sounds nice. <laughs> then a couple of days later, the following day or a couple of days later, I always forget, I get another phone call from somebody else who says the exact same thing. And then another phone call from somebody else who says the exact same thing. And it's like, all right, I need to probably pay attention to this. So I uh, was able to get in contact and, you know, started the process to apply. Uh, the reason why I took it or I accepted the position was because I think it fits my calling again. Um, it's the calling to serve people and to make a large impact or larger impact in community. So as a vice president and chief diversity officer at Greenville University, I was, I was making an impact for 600 to 800 students, which is wonderful. Uh, as a police officer, I was making an impact for, you know, a certain number of square blocks in the city of St. Louis and the districts that I worked in or the areas that I worked in. Uh, as executive director of a smaller CDC, I was, but you know, this is an organization that has a, not just a city impact, but a regional impact. Um, and again, uh, I'm, I'm the type of person who I don't ask 
a lot of questions if I understand that it fits my calling. And when I began the process and started going through everything, uh, it, it just fit. It checked all the boxes, what I understand my life is supposed to be about. And uh, when they offered it to me, I was like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. So, um, yeah, there's not some kind of wonderful story other than, you know, I, I truly do believe that, again, because I believe in a personal creator, I do truly do believe that, that this personal creator has, has shaped me to be able to do this job or to be put into this position to be able to do this job. Now, I don't understand exactly what's going to happen, <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to do my best to enjoy the ride uh, until uh, somebody says, all right, son, you, you need to go ahead and sit out somewhere. Well, I think that is perfect. And I am so glad that we, we did this. Uh, Terrell, I think is really cool. It's been really great. I think for both of our listeners, for the communities forward people to hear you talk a little bit about you. I don't know how much you do that on your show, but we I don't, I don't do it at all. It's not about <laughs> me. It's always about the guests and why our listeners should care about who the guests are and the impact that they're making in the world. Exactly. And and we're the same way on Black Tea. So I think this will be great um, for us both to have this and, and for our listeners to be able to learn uh, about all of us. So thank you so much again for, for offering this opportunity and, and bringing us on your show. I don't know who needs to hear this, but... Having an album entitled Certified Lover Boy, but then giving credits and proceeds to predators like R. Kelly, who have harmed and abused young women. And this is not up for debate. OK, there's a video of him urinating on a young teenager. And I in a whole book and oh. a whole. OK, and a whole documentary. But I'm not even going to go into any more details. That's not up for debate. But that's not very lover boyish at all. There are plenty of artists to pick from to support. So perhaps picking one that doesn't violate or abuse women is the way to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If y'all haven't heard Certified Lover, just go on and look up Drake. I'm sure you'll, you've seen it streaming and everything. And uh, I mean, minus that part, the album is kind of fire, but he really lost a whole lot of points with me on that. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Get over the R. Kelly sample. We, just skip. Just don't don't, don't stream support. that one. Don't stream that. We don't that stream. One. We don't support. We don't collab. He's canceled. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I don't know who needs to hear this, but Kanye, you also lost some points with me today. Not that I'm not for Donda because I love an album. I love a man paying homage and respect to his mama who raised him and who groomed them. All of that is fire. All of that is beautiful. But these listening parties are where you lost me and I draw the line. Because first of all, why are you having 38,000 people gathered in Chicago with no vaccine requirements, no mask requirements to watch you rebuild a house like <laughs> for what like for what it is a pandemic what was the reason what is the reason and traveling and doing it in other cities like really it's just like and you don't need the money because you are kanye so why first of all that's first of all number one going through a divorce that is mm, yeah but you got your own i know kim had half of it but you got your own for what <laughs> And the second thing for me is, I don't know who needs to hear this, but we also, again, don't need to be promoting people that are problematic. Why did you bring the baby on stage who has made comments that already got a whole concert of his own canceled in Chicago, Lollapalooza, and bring in Marilyn Manson on stage, who is also going through their own allegation trials right now for being abusive um, and uh, harmful to women. I just don't understand it. It's not a good look, Kanye. I know you like to get in the headlines for controversy. You did the same thing with your Trump picture, but there's no need to do that. There's no need to do that. Just make a quality album and move about your day. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. I don't know who needs to hear this, but creating a platform, follow Black Tees Guy. The people we bring y'all on this show are all doing great positive in the community. They should be uplifted. They should be highlighted. We're not bringing no predators, no homophobic folks. We're not bringing them on the show and giving them, we're not creating platforms and building stages for them. Or for likes for yourself. Or Period. to get Google hits. No, it's unnecessary. Period. That's all. Welcome. Thank you for coming to our TED Talk. Ha, 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 ha.